0: Y'all can be seated, our preschoolers, y'all can make your way out with your teachers, looks like Mr. Lucas, Miss Lauren will be leading y'all today. So preschoolers, head on out to the back doors, everybody else that's staying here, I want to invite you to pull out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. Ephesians, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, some verses there. We are currently, if you missed last week, in the middle of a series covering the fundamentals of our church's vision. We've said that our church exists to make disciples ...who love God and others. We've taken the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. The Great Commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all that is in you... ...and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've combined them together and said this is why our church exists... ...to make disciples who love God and others. And we're, we're making the case now that in order to do this well... ...in order to fulfill this, this vision, we need three things. We need gospel doctrine gospel culture and gospel mission doctrine what we believe we need to know the gospel culture we need to show the gospel in the way that we live life together and finally we need to mission go with the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations and today we're going to be talking about the culture of our church, to see just how vital it is to the health of our church. Now, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. I I did an entire sermon series on gospel culture back in the spring. I would encourage you to go back and look at that. We'll be covering some of these same concepts today. And what we need to, to observe right up front, because it's not a word we typically use with churches, unless, of course, we're talking about things like the way that people dress and, or, you know, the types of ministries that churches have and, and you know, all of that, which, which definitely does help form a culture. But we need to admit from the front end, every church has a culture. Every church, whether they are intentionally building one or not, every church has a culture. A church culture is simply the habitual, social, and experiential environment of a local church. It's the environment. It's, it's the water we swim in. A church culture is, is you could say, just the vibe of the church, the feel that you get when you're among the people of the church. It's our collective attitudes. It's our collective actions. Ray Ortland, who's the first person I read to write about gospel culture, he calls it the communal character of a church. So it's not just like, well, this guy's really kind or that, that person's really mean. It's what's the communal character? Whenever you're among the people of this church, what experience do you have? That's, that tells you what the culture is. Now, why should we care one iota about the culture of our church? Why, why does it matter at all? Well, in order to answer that question, we actually have to turn to a movie that is called inside out has anybody ever seen the movie inside out raise your hand if you've seen inside out okay elders make a note of all the people raising their hands got you um shouldn't be watching that movie no i'm just kidding um so you gotta be careful answering questions in, in church um no, Inside Out. Inside Out. It's it's a it's a cute uh, movie. It's actually one of the more creative and interesting movies that Disney's probably ever made. It's it's so interesting. I, the kids, you know, when I were watching it together, or you know, Eric and I will typically watch a movie or at least skim through it to kind of see if it would be good for the kids to watch. And we're watching Inside Out. I remember, and we were like man this is really good like we we really enjoyed it ourselves um but if you if you haven't seen it um inside out it it's a movie that focuses on this girl named Riley and and Riley and and really it focuses on the move that her family makes across the country they move from you know, Minnesota all the way to, I think it was Minnesota, somewhere somewhere up north, all the way to California out in San Francisco. And, and as it's following her, it follows all the changes that happen in her life. But the most interesting part of the movie is that all of the action, or the most, most of the action in the movie, actually happens inside Riley's head, in her mind. And so the main characters in Inside Out are um, her emotions, happiness, and sadness, anger, fear, disgust and they're inside her brain operating Riley with you know all these controls that they have and it's just it's just kind of it's just a cute you know creative movie and and you know they they follow her and as Riley experiences the world there are these things that that happen to her that they call core memories. And these core memories actually form parts of her personality. So there are these big moments in her life that shape her and sometimes actually change her. Sometimes for good, sometimes for worse. Most of her core memories, as you're following her in the movie, have been happy ones. Happy core memories. Making friends. The first time she scored a hockey goal, it just stood out. It was this memory that she had that, that you know, gave her a love for hockey. It shaped her personality. Goofing off with her parents, there's this, you know, they have all these, like, personality islands of, like, you know, hockey island and family island, friendship island and all this. And the point here is that there are things that happen in her life that are memories that shape her, and they're called core memories. And we need to see today the culture of the church is is very important because of how powerful it is in our lives. The culture of our church will give us core memories that leave lasting imprints on our lives for better or for worse. It's in the culture of the church that this happens. Some of our worst memories in the church, emotional trauma, come not from the teaching that happens in the church not from you know uh, the the service or the the mission work that happens in the church but from the culture of the church it's usually relational now there's always the potential I probably have already done it for me to offend you in, in a sermon like you know I can say some things that I wish I hadn't said all the time of course like that that's always on the table But your worst memories in the church usually are not related to doctrine. They come from culture. On the other hand, some of your best memories in the church also come from the culture of the church. I mean, think back, growing up in church, if you grew up in church, what are your best memories? What are your memories at all? Do you know how many sermons I can remember growing up in church? Very humbling as a preacher, by the way. This is very, very humbling. But do you know how many sermons I remember my, my preacher, or the pastors of, of the church that I grew up in preaching? Zero. Zero. I don't remember a single sermon. I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember David Hawkins, who was a pastor of our, our church, coming in the gym at the church one day when I was shooting basketball with my granddad, and he came and he rebounded for me for five minutes. I remember that. Do you remember when people prayed for you? You remember when people cared for you, they checked on you, they brought you meals, they laughed with you, they celebrated with you? This is is all happening within the culture of the church. And so while church culture isn't more important than church doctrine in the sense that all we have to do is focus on our experience here together, who cares what we believe? No. And it's not more important than the mission of our church. We need to keep taking the gospel and extending it beyond our four walls. But we usually experience the culture of our church as the most powerful aspect of the church. It shapes us in immediate and lasting ways. Now here's what we need to see, and this is what I want to show you from Ephesians 3 and 4. God's desire for his church is that we embody a culture that reflects the nature of his grace. God wants us to... to, uh, uh, Embody a culture that reflects the nature of his grace, and we call this a gospel culture. And in a gospel culture, we can create some core memories that actually start to form us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, for answering the question, what is a gospel culture? The way that we've answered it in the past, we'll continue to answer it, is this A gospel culture is a way of life in the church that resembles and reflects the person and work of Jesus. It is a church culture that remains in step with the gospel. The gospel itself in the church, it has this effect. It creates a culture that reflects its nature. And Ray, Ort- Ray Ortland, who's the first person I ever saw, um, uh, write on this. And uh, if you are new here, I really want to make sure you get a green book on your way out. Um, if you didn't get one on your way in, he, he writes about this concept there. He says this about a gospel culture. He says, gospel culture is a communal character that radiates the beauty of Jesus and the radical grace offered to us in him. So if Jesus is proclaimed in a church's gospel doctrine, we preach the gospel, Jesus is seen and he is felt and he is experienced through a church's gospel culture. So our way of life as a church must be modeled after and characteristic of who Jesus is and what he came to do and when this happens not only do the members of a church experience the gospel and its benefits but outsiders those who are considering Christianity those who are not believers they see the gospel and its power we want to look like Jesus in our attitudes and our actions and we want others to see Jesus in us this happens in a gospel culture So if a gospel culture is fundamental to our church, it's it's something that we have to have if we're going to make disciples who love God and others, we need to consider three things from Ephesians 3 and 4, three things. Number one, we need to see the root of a gospel culture, we need to see where where it comes from. Two, we need to see the fruit of a gospel culture, you got to see what it produces. And then finally, we need to see the cultivation of a gospel culture what we need to help a gospel culture grow. The root, the fruit, the cultivation. All right, let's let's start. The root, the root of a gospel culture. I want you to look with me in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. In verse 14, what we're asking here is where does a gospel culture come from? And what we're going to see in this prayer, Paul expresses a prayer in Ephesians 3, Verses 14 through 19. We're gonna, we're gonna cap it right there at verse 19. What we see here is that a gospel culture depends on a work of God and it begins in our hearts. The root of a gospel culture is God working in our hearts. So let's look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3:14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want to pause right there. I meant to say this before I started reading. This is a little, it interrupts it a little bit. But I want to encourage you to do something as I read. As I read, I want you to number off Paul's prayer requests. He's making prayer requests to the Lord on behalf of the Ephesian believers here. So when you see him requesting something in prayer, just make a note of it and see how many we come up with, okay? And there are, by the way, there are different ways of counting this, so don't worry. There's no like, right or wrong answer. Okay, so he says, According to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, How many prayer requests did you guys get? Just hold up a number. Okay, Uh, five over here. Anybody have a different one? Six, anybody? Uh, Six over there. Anybody have a different one? Five. Anybody have a different one? I have a different one. Anybody else have a different one? There are different ways of counting it. Some people say two, actually, by the way, and they just lump a bunch of this stuff together. Some people say three. I'm going to say four, all right? So we're all over the place. I love it, okay? There are different ways, different different requests that he makes here. I'm going to focus on four of the requests that... Paul makes in this passage so he essentially is praying for four things on the basis of the riches of God's glory he says he prays he makes this request that God may grant strength through the power of the spirit we can say one there that Christ may dwell in their hearts we can say two there that by being rooted and grounded in Christ's love they might know his love we can say three and that they may be filled with all the fullness of God we can say Four. He's praying for things, but essentially he's asking for the same thing. God, would you please work in the hearts of these believers? Would you work in their hearts? He's praying that the Spirit would strengthen their hearts. He's praying that Christ would come to live and dwell in their hearts. And he's praying that they would know the love of God deeply in their hearts as it's rooted and grounded in their hearts. And he's praying that their hearts would be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, a church culture that radiates the beauty of Jesus has to be rooted in this inner work of God. This is where it begins. See, here's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. When you come to faith in Jesus, you experience two two things, spiritually, theologically. Justification and sanctification. You are both justified and you are sanctified when you come to faith in Jesus. Justification is this wonderful truth that on the basis of Jesus' death in your place, God looks on you, and although you are a guilty sinner because of this great exchange that happens and Jesus' righteousness is applied to us, and our sin is applied to him. God declares us to be innocent. It's a declaration. It's our pardon from sin and its consequences. This is something that God does unilaterally, and it forms the basis of everything else we experience as Christians. Sanctification is also a wonderful truth, and it's the wonderful truth that on the basis of Jesus' death in our place, God changes our lives from the inside out. These are two different things. See, when God saves us, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you the energy or the power that you need to change your life, and if you change your life, then you will be saved. That's not how it works. Justification says, because of my grace, on the basis of my grace, I'm looking on you, a sinner, and saying you are innocent on the basis of what Jesus did in your place. Sanctification, though, is this this great truth that God does actually change our lives from the inside out. This is something that God does, and it's something in which we play a role as we're working out our own salvation as we follow Jesus. Now, theologically, a gospel culture is rooted in sanctification, this great work of God in us to change us into his likeness. So, Think back to when you first came to faith in Jesus. We were talking about this a little bit this morning in our equipping class. When you come to faith in Jesus, God, most likely, for most of us, did not change the circumstances around us. That's not usually what happens. You came to faith. You got baptized, you woke up the next week, and your life felt pretty much the same as it did the week before. And sometimes we wig out on that, and we're like, ah, maybe it wasn't real. I, don't, I should be feeling a lot more here. But, but when you come to faith, God does not, usually does not, change the circumstances around you. Your experience of the world will probably be left unchanged. But in the gospel, God does change us. And and while this is experienced by each of us individually, it also has an effect on us corporately. So Paul is praying for God to work in each of the Ephesians' hearts individually, and he is praying for God's inner work to be experienced corporately. This inner work that's happening in each of the Ephesian Christians is going to have a communal effect. And that's because it makes sense. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus created a new people. We saw this back in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 15. Turn there if you want. He says here, But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so we need to track with Paul here. He's saying, by faith in Jesus you've been brought near. Peace has been made between you and God and between you and other people. And this was accomplished by the blood of Jesus. Why? What's the point? And he tells us in the second half of Ephesians 2.15, look at it, the second half of that verse. So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This new man, this new humanity that's created through the shed blood of Jesus, through the gospel, begins to take shape. You begin to see it as the Spirit's power strengthens our hearts, as Jesus himself indwells our hearts, as the love of God invades our hearts, and as the fullness of God fills our hearts. The only way for our church to reflect God's grace and love in our culture is for God himself To work in our hearts. This root of a gospel culture, God's sanctifying work, proves that a gospel culture is built from the inside out. Here's what we can't do. And churches try to do this, and this is why it fails. And if we try to do it, it would fail. We can't just give you a list of expectations of how you're supposed to conduct yourself in our church and expect anything to change. You know, we we could. We could say, in our church... We love each other, and we're humble before one another, and we're holy, but just saying that doesn't change anything. Expectations are really helpful, and and it's good to have clear expectations, but on their own, they are powerless to create what they demand. I mean, otherwise, we'll just be like Michael Scott when he wants to declare bankruptcy, remember, you know, from the office? And he just walks out into the room and says, I declare bankruptcy, you know, thinking that it's going to somehow change his financial situation. They're like, no, you can't just say that, Michael. And he's like, didn't say it, I declared it, you know. And, and we can't do that in the church. We can't just declare how we're going to be. This is how it's going to be in our church. Like, there's no power in that. The good news is. When our expectations to love one another and be humble before one another and pursue holiness and and be gracious and be honest in our dealings with each other, when those expectations are connected and rooted in this powerful work of God through his spirit and through Christ indwelling our hearts, then there is power behind these expectations. A church culture that reflects the gospel's nature is formed in each of us individually before and as it is seen in us and felt Corporately. So, through the gospel, here's what's happening God is shaping and molding us into people who slowly but surely start to live in ways consistent with the new life that we have been given in Christ. And it's on the basis of this root, this foundation, that we start to see a gospel culture form. Well, second, we need to see the fruit, the fruit of a gospel culture. And we have to move on to Ephesians 4 to see this what do we see in the gospel culture how do you know that we've that we've reached it here at trace and the answer is is found in what paul says after his prayer so just to bring you back he prays for god to work in the hearts of his people in, in four ways the spirit would strengthen christ would indwell the love of christ would be known and the fullness of god would fill them and then immediately after the prayer, he says something so interesting. So he prays this prayer. There's a doxology in verses 20 and 21. And then the very next thing he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that's, that's interesting. And Therefore is is a key word. Any anytime you see it in scripture, it's usually a clue that you need to back up a little bit and read what came before it. In, in Ephesians four, it's it, the word therefore is forming this bridge between Paul's exhortation to walk and the prayer summarized by this last request that the fullness of God would fill them. So, so Paul's a ba- he's basically saying here, on the basis of God's riches. On the basis of the strengthening power of the Spirit, on the basis of the indwelling of Christ in your hearts, on the basis of his love being planted deep in your inner being, walk this way. You have no idea how tempted I was to just pull Stephen Tyler out and just go full Aerosmith right there. I was so tempted to do it, I had to tell you that I almost did it, okay? I was very tempted. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't. Um, The gospel creates a particular type of walk for each and every one of us. When the spirit strengthens our hearts, when Christ indwells our hearts and we know his love for us, we walk, we live our lives in step with these things. Paul's prayer request forms the basis of our walk and empowers us to walk. See, when you're filled with the fullness of God, your life should overflow with the fullness of God. So so what does this walk that we call gospel culture look like? What's the calling to which we've been called? Well, Paul tells us. Look with me in verses 2 through 3. So he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what is that that manner? What What is that calling? He says, walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul actually later, if you drop down a little further in Ephesians 4, he goes on to write and talk about the way of Christ that should mark our lives. So, so jump down actually to verse 17, verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Let's see what else he says. He says, now, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. So he's calling them away from something. He's saying, don't, don't keep walking like them. Don't, don't keep living this way. You have a new standard now. And here's the standard. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ, if you jump down to verse 20. Jump down to verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Christ he's the standard the gospel is the standard for the way that we walk the way that we live now he says assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self and here's here's where we get it created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So to sum all that up, Paul's telling us to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity. He's telling us to stay on the path of true righteousness and holiness. What he's outlining for us here is a gospel culture. This is the fruit of a church culture that is rooted in, in the gospel of God's glory and grace, a church culture, individual Christians, but but experienced communally here as a, as a church, we should be demonstrating these things. Why? Because we are rooted in the gospel itself. It produces these types of fruits because we are tethered to Jesus who exemplifies these, these fruits. So if the sanctifying work of God in our hearts is the root of a gospel culture, we can see Three fruits of gospel culture in Ephesians 4. Three. Now obviously there are more words than that. I just counted seven. But but as, as three buckets of virtues, I, I wanna I want to share with you again. We talked about this back in the spring. Three fruits of a gospel culture: humility, love, and holiness. Humility, love, and and holiness, and again, these are big buckets. There are other things that fit within them, and you're going to see it in just a second. But what, what we need to see here is that a gospel culture, a church culture that looks like Jesus, is humble, loving, and holy. First, a gospel culture is humble. Paul says to walk with all humility. Now, humility is counting others more significant than yourself. So when the gospel becomes visible in our church, that's what we're going to see. A group of people who are counting the other people in their community is more significant than themselves. And the reason that that happens is when we know that we are saved, not by our own strength or performance, but by Jesus, we can't claim personal superiority over any other person in this room. How could we? We are dreadful sinners just like everyone else in here. We are saved not through our good deeds but through what Jesus has done. And When that is grounding your heart you cannot be prideful over another person. You cannot claim superiority. Jesus himself he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Paul tells us in Philippians 2. So we in our church, we will refuse, we have to refuse, to exalt ourselves over one another. We will refuse to look down on other people as if we are somehow better. And instead, we will cultivate a gospel culture, a culture of humility in which we count others more significant than ourselves. And here's what, here's what you start to see. When humility becomes a cultural norm at Trace Crossing, honesty is cultivated. Honesty. Hypocrisy is uprooted. Humility leads to honesty. We can, we can be honest with who we are and with our sin before each other. We can confess and we can repent because we already know we're no better than anyone else here. We don't have this pride that's keeping us from being honest with who we truly are. Humility also leads to honor. We honor one another. We show honor to each other. We, we're humbling ourselves. We're not so prideful. We're, we're not wanting to honor other people because they may get more attention than us here. No, that's not how we're operating. The gospel's our new operating system. Shaming other people is uprooted. And finally, service becomes normal. Apathy is uprooted. We serve each other because we're counting other people in our midst as more significant than ourselves. The second fruit that we see is love. Humility and love. Paul prays that the love of God would be rooted in our hearts. He prays that we would know the love of Christ. And then he says that we should bear with one another in love. In a gospel culture, Christ's love for us leads to our love for others. Our salvation is rooted in the love of God for sinners. Jesus' love for us is a feeling and an action He feels love for us. He wants us. He draws near to us. He cares for us. He has compassion for us. And on the other hand, he acts in love for us. He dies in our place. It's love and action. So in the culture of our church, as we do life together here, we will refuse to just tolerate each other. We will refuse to be judgmental or cold one another we, we won't keep each other at arm's length we won't be jealous or envious of one another instead we will cultivate a gospel culture a culture of love and when that happens when it becomes a cultural norm at trace grace will be our common experience as judgmental attitudes and behaviors are expelled when you love one another you will welcome one another Not just tolerate one another, we'll open our homes, we'll open our lives to each other. And finally, we will truly rejoice with each other as our love for one another casts out all bitterness. So humility and love will mark us. But finally, the final fruit we see here is holiness. When the gospel becomes visible in our church, we will see a pursuit of holiness. Our actions among one another, will be just and righteous. We will see that we are set apart for God's glory. We saw it there in Ephesians four twenty four that we are called to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we will refuse to stay as we are. We will grow in the likeness of Jesus. We will cultivate a cultural norm of set-apartness from destructive behaviors and attitudes. And when that becomes normal at Trace Crossing, what we start to see is healthy habits become normal. And it won't just be the super Christians among us who read their Bible and pray regularly. Church discipline is not going to be something that's neglected and it's not going to be something that's abused. Obedience to God and his word will be gladly expected and pursued because we are not obeying in order to belong. Now, now, imagine if we lived like that among one another. Imagine if humility and love and holiness marked our life together. If each Sunday we gathered, if each life group, if each equipping class we participated in was an embodied demonstration to the world and the church that we have met Jesus and we've never been the same since. Imagine if our city, as you go to work and as you are, are just living in your neighborhood, Imagine if it was filled with more humble, loving, holy people. Imagine if each church member experienced honesty, honor, service, grace, welcome, joy, and developed healthy spiritual habits. This is only possible in a church that is infused with the gospel of God's grace. And this is what happens when we unite together around the news of God's powerful grace in Jesus particular culture of radical grace and love starts to emerge a beautiful counterculture is offered to the world when we create gospel culture in our church we are creating a safe environment for sinners like us to receive grace and to grow for people who suffer to receive care and heal for the poor and burdened to receive relief and recover, and for those trapped in a cycle of sin to be set free, for the outcast to receive belonging and peace. This is the vision of a gospel culture. It is so beautiful because it is what God desires for our church. Now, how do we get there? How do we cultivate this type of culture in our midst? We need, we've said this before, it's probably the third or fourth time I've preached on this. We need three things. We need the gospel. Hope that's clear at this point. We need safety and we need time. This simple formula, gospel plus safety plus time, leads to a gospel culture. And I want to look at these one by one. Gospel. We, We cannot forget this, that Jesus will forever be the standard for our church's culture. If the culture of our church does not reflect Jesus and his character, we are missing the mark. Think about it. If you believe that you have to earn love from God through your obedience and you're neglecting Jesus, you're going to try to earn love from other people. If you believe that your behaviors or your good works are the basis of your acceptance with God, you're only going to accept other people who meet the standards that you set for them. But when you're in an environment that preaches, teaches, believes the good news that sinners are saved through what Jesus has done, and that through that we receive forgiveness and love and acceptance and grace, you will be empowered to live a life of love and grace and mercy and joy, and that will be your experience here. So in order to create a gospel culture, we need multiple exposures to the gospel. We need to be swimming in a sea of gospel. That's the reason that we structure our worship services the way that we do. That's why we take time every Sunday to offer a gospel welcome. That's why we walk you through the drama of the gospel. That's why Corey did a prayer of confession this morning so we could see our sin and our need for Christ. And that's why we proclaim him. And That's why our songs are gospel-centered. We can never have enough of this news. But second, we need safety. Safety. And this would be the greatest tragedy and maybe the most common. If we spoke the gospel but did not show it, If a message of grace was attracting people from all walks of life, but then when they come here, they are met with pressure and accusations and judgment and condescension. You can't grow in an environment like that. Cultivating a gospel culture requires safe, non-accusing, sympathetic environments. If we don't have a safe environment for each of us to confess our sins... How will we ever put our sins to death? We can't do it. In a gospel culture, there is no room for embarrassing one another. There's no room for shaming one another. There are no ultimatums. In a gospel culture, we find respect and we find honor. We find dignity and we find people who will listen and seek to understand. When we each feel safe, To share who and where we really are. It's only then that we are set free to grow into who God's created us to be. You see, the goal of a gospel culture is not this this emphasis on God's grace. The goal is not to make our church a safe place for sin to abound or thrive. Where we just live however we want because we're claiming God's grace and there's forgiveness. And, you know, let's just keep sinning so that God's grace will keep coming. No, a gospel culture is meant to make the church a safe place for sin to be confessed and repented of. Would you ever confess sins to people that are going to shame you? Would you ever confess sins to people who are going to reject you, who are going to turn you away? No, you won't. It won't happen. So what will you do instead? You will pretend like everything is okay. You will pretend like you're perfect and there there are no sins for you to even repent of. And you won't change. And you'll develop this unhealthy habit of drawing in on yourself and having superficial relationships with others. And you'll never grow. We need safety. We want a church culture where the worst sinner imaginable can find forgiveness, freedom, redemption, healing, belonging, joy in Christ and with us. So we have to have safety. But finally... We have to have time. Man, this is so important. We talked about this too. This was part of our conversation in the equipping class. We need time to grow. None of us has arrived. We need enough time to see where we're missing the mark. We need enough time to learn from God through his word and through his spirit where we need to change. The easiest thing in the world is to observe a sin in another person. That's easy. Someone sins against you, whoop, sigh. You, you watch someone, you observe someone, and they're sinning, or, or they're not living as they should, you see it immediately. How difficult is it for you to sometimes see your own sin? We need time. We need time to grow. I, I love how Ray Ortland puts it. He says, people are complex, and changing is not easy. Cultivating a gospel culture requires a ton of urgency because it's so important for us to live our lives to God's glory, but no hurry, much urgency, no hurry, because God is so patient with us. Whether you're an unbeliever or a new believer, an immature believer, even the most mature believer among us, we each need time in a safe place of gospel saturation in order to grow. And in this environment, with gospel plus safety plus time, the beauty of God's grace is seen and experienced. No one is singled out. No one is pressured. No one is a second class citizen in the kingdom of God. And we are all in need of the gospel, and we're all in need of safety, and we're all in need of time to become the people that God has created us to be. Listen, our church has a culture, it has one already. And it will continue to have a culture. That's unstoppable. The question for us is what type of culture will our church have? What type of culture do we want our church to have? What do we want the experience to be when people come and assimilate into our spiritual family? What type of core memories do we want imprinted in our minds and hearts for the years to come? I pray that we will keep cultivating a gospel culture so that each and every member here will not just know the gospel, but show it and experience it. I want each of us to be able to look back on our time at Trace Crossing 10, 20, 30 years from now and remember the humility and the love and the holiness of Jesus because of our experiences among one another. I want us to keep cultivating gospel culture also So that unbelievers will see that Christianity is not theoretical, that it's as real as the flesh and blood Savior we follow. And that we would show him to them and that they would see him in us.